The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Man, love that last song. Just, uh, just thinking about that, you know, what does it mean for us to, to overcome in light of what Jesus has overcome you know, I don't know if you've ever been, uh, I love getting out on the ocean, you know, when it's still dark, and uh, you're out there, and it's, everything's dark, and then you see the sun start coming over the horizon, and the light pushes back the darkness, and the darkness begins just to flee from its presence, and that's this idea of what Jesus has done um, through his death and his resurrection, that he has brought in a new age, new era, where the light is pushing back the darkness and where the light has overcome the darkness. And this is what it means. We, you know, our, our VBS theme was uh, being a superhero, and the truth is that Jesus is the superhero. Jesus is the one that has come and has conquered Satan, has conquered sin, has conquered death. And through our faith in him, he allows us to overcome and to conquer those same things. It's not that we have the strength in ourselves. It's through, it's through our trust and our relationship with him. So... Great song. All right, let's press on. We are going to get into 1 John. So past several weeks, we have been making our way through 1 John, and we're going to be in here for a little while. And so uh, excited about that. If you have your Bibles, you should have one that's underneath a seat somewhere. Go ahead and crack that open. And uh, we are going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to uh, kind of point out there are three big themes that we're going to see in First John. John is a cyclical thinker. He's not very linear. And so he just hits a theme and then he comes back to it. It's like he's like a shotgun, you know, it just shoots everywhere. You're like, didn't we talk about this? We did, but it's kind of different, but it's the same. And so John just keeps cycling back to these things. And you're going to see these three, three, three things over and over again is that John is, uh, is going to teach us what it means to love. John is going to take us to school on what does it mean for us to love. The second thing is that he's going to bring clarity about what it means to follow Jesus. Remember, uh, John is dealing with a church split. There are people that left the, the church and are claiming to be Christians but aren't, and are rather heretics, are Gnostics. And so John is really helping the church to understand what does it mean to follow Jesus. And he's warning those that have fallen away, those that have pursued a false gospel, uh, and saying that you're not in line with the Lord. And then the third thing is he's trying to bring encouragement and assurance. So while he's warning those that have fallen away, he's encouraging and assuring those that remain uh, of where that they are saved, that they truly are born again. And so as believers, we are intended to read this book, and it's intended to bring assurance. It's intended to bring encouragement into our lives. So quick recap so that we can move on uh, in, into our current text. But we see John opens up the book in chapter one, and he's talking about that he physically saw Jesus. He's an eyewitness, and he's telling them that I'm an apostle. Who has better uh, authority or testimony than me? Uh, a lot, we hear this a lot of time. People will die for what they believe to be true, but no one will die for what they know to be a lie. And John testifies that, listen, I felt him, I heard him, I saw him. Jesus was not a myth. He was a physical person who lived and walked 2,000 years ago. And John testifies to this. But he doesn't just say Jesus was a, a person. He was this guy. He then in turn says that he was eternal, that he had always existed, but came and took up residence within a man at a specific time in human history, that he's eternal, that he is the word of life, that he has been from the beginning. 
And so Jesus isn't just physical. He's not just human, but he's also eternal. He's also spirit. He's God. And so we have the mystery of the incarnation, fully man and fully God. And John, John is, is impressing, saying this is truth. And I bear witness to this. I tell you this. Why? Because he wants fellowship with them. He wants unity with them. And he says that his joy, our joy is found in our unity with other people. And especially, most importantly, with other believers. And he says this is, this is what brings joy. If you want to you be a hedonist, you want to pursue pleasure, pursue your pleasure through chasing after Jesus through giving your life away. He says that that's the truest way to gain the most joy, is not by trying to hoard on to your possessions, not by trying to stack up your reputation. He says that joy is truly found in giving your life away for the sake of others. And it brings in this unity, this fellowship. And he says, be, pursue joy, pursue pleasure, but don't settle for less. Go big, give your life away as Christ did and you will find a deeper joy that will not disappoint. He goes on and, and later on, and he says that, that we are to walk in the light. Later on, chapter 1, he says that God is light, and we are to walk in the light. And what this means is it means that we live a life of transparency, is that because of Jesus, our identity is no longer found in our performance, and therefore we can confess our sins. We don't have to come and put a mask on and act like everything's okay when it's not. Instead, we can be true and transparent and real because we're only as sick as our secrets. And so when we refuse to confess, when we refuse to bring things into light, we're only damaging ourselves and those around us. And so John urges us. He says, listen, don't deny your sin. Don't hide it. Don't run away from it. Don't blame it on somebody else. Instead, step up to the plate, own, and say, listen, I have fallen short. I have I've sinned, and I confess it. But he, and he says, if you will confess your sins, God is faithful to forgive you of your sins, to, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so we live the Christian life as one of transparency, of one of honesty, because our identity is not found in our performance. It's found in Christ. And then we see in chapter 2 as he, he transitions, and he says, listen, I've written this letter so that you wouldn't sin. Sinning is not a good thing, and I would like that you would not do that. But the reality is you're going to sin. I know that. You're a broken people, and so you're going to sin. Guess what, though? We have an advocate. Good news. We got a legal attorney with us, and, like, he's good. I mean, we, Jesus knows the Father. He's got an inside route to him, and uh, not only that, he knows everything, and so he's pretty good at defending. Uh, and, and the thing is, is that he, he defends because he's already satisfied the debt that you owe, all right? And that's what he says. He says that Jesus is our defender, our advocate, but he's also our propitiation. That, mean, that word, big word, propitiation, it means to turn away anger, to turn away wrath. And so Jesus turns away the Father's wrath against our sin. Right? God doesn't love sin. He, he doesn't look at sin and get excited about it. He looks at it and it grieves his heart. It angers him. It displeases him. But Jesus, the Son, comes and takes the full anger of the Father so that the Father's pleasure and the Father's love would settle upon us. And this is what he says. He says, in light of that, in light of Jesus turning away God's anger, in light of him being our defender when we do sin, we live a life of obedience to him. We don't profess to know him while we walk in darkness. He says that we lie. We're deceiving ourselves and others. He says that if we claim to be in Jesus, we will live as he lived. We will walk as he walked. That doesn't mean that we're Jesus, but it means that we are going to live a life like Jesus. What that means is it means that our life is going to be marked by submitting to God's will, by trusting in God's plan. God's plan looks differently for each one of us. 
But what it means for us to follow Jesus is it, for, it means that we trust that God's plan for our life is better than ours. And that at times when it doesn't make sense, that we know that he has a plan and a purpose and that it will work out for his glory and for our good. And so we, we live a life of submission to his will and of trust in his goodness. And this is what it means for us to walk as Jesus walked. And so now we come to our current passage in verses 7 through 14. So, have a Bible, read along with me. Verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. So the big idea that I think clarifies this passage and is going to direct our time is this, is that God commands us to love. God commands us to love, and that love brings clarity, brings light or clarity, and it also brings maturity into our lives. Love brings light or clarity and maturity into our lives. And so this uh, passage nicely breaks down into two points, uh, verses 7 through 11 and verses 12 through 14. And so verses 7 through 11, we're going to talk about the light of love the light of love, and then in 12 through 14, we're going to talk about the process of maturity. It is the process of maturity. So first, the light of love. The whole paragraph is assuming that you have read John, his gospel. So he apparently is self-promoting because he wants you to read his other works. And, uh, and so he is assuming the command that he's talking about is explicitly found all throughout the gospel of John. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He says it again in John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Love is kind of important to Jesus. He, you know, he, he thinks the idea is, is, uh, is pretty vital for us. And, you know, the problem is a lot of times that we use love in all kinds of different ways, and so therefore we don't really know what it means. You know, we, we use it emphatically, we use it passionately, we use it casually. We say, I love you. I mean, the English language sometimes has a disadvantage since we only have one word for love, right? I mean, I can say I love ice cream, I love my dog, I love my mom, and I love my wife. And all of them are very true but mean very different things. <laughs> and so we see that the Greek language has, you know, at least Koine Greek has four different words for love. You have phileo, storge, eros, and agape. You know, 
Phileo is used for brotherly love. Philadelphia, it means a city of brotherly love. And so it's this idea of friendship love. You have storge, which is this idea of familial love, this connection. And you have eros, which is where we get our word for, it's passion, erotic. And it means to be this, this infatuated kind of love. And then you have agape. And agape is this idea of divine love, of this unconditional love. And this is what John is wanting us to understand is that God has this unconditional divine love for us. And so what is, what is love? And I think for me, a, a definition I've heard a while ago and has always stuck with me is that love, God's love is a passionate commitment, a passionate commitment to his glory and our good, to his glory and our good. God's love is a passionate commitment to his glory in our lives, which will, lead to, which will lead to good for us. And so I hope you know this, that, that God is passionate about you. I mean, God doesn't look at you and is apathetic and is indifferent. God has a passion. God has, feels emotion towards you. He loves you. His heart is warmed by you. Not only does God have emotion, but God is committed to you. God isn't fickle. He isn't for you one day and not the next. But God is committed to you. He's the most consistent person that you've ever had or ever will have in your life for your good. But God, God, wants, your, God wants his glory, ultimately. God will be glorified in your life. He will make much of himself through you. And ultimately, that, that is for your good. When God is glorified in your life, when, when he is seen as much in you, that will lead to what is best for you. Your life will be, will be much better when God has made much in you. And so God has promised God will do this. And it's kind of wise that we receive God's love, that we listen to God about love. I mean, God is the source of love. He kind of invented it. And so it's pretty wise for us to think, well, listen, I should go to the person that made this. And so God, not only is he the inventor and the source of love, but he's also the first one to demonstrate love. Have you thought about that? That God is the first one to show love. And not only is he the first one to show love, but he's also the first one to receive love. Not only that, but he's the one that has done it the longest. <laughs> he has been showing and receiving love from before time existed. And so for us to say and to, to push God aside and say, well, I'll figure out this whole love thing on my own without your help, thank you very much, is dumb. And so don't be dumb. Come and learn from Jesus. Come and learn from God about what does it mean to love? How do we, how do we love? And this is what the book of 1 John is all about is that the book of 1 John is shouting as loud as it possibly can that God loves you. Now the question is, have you received it? Have you received it? Do you believe it? Are you standing firm in it? Are you bathing your life in the love of God? Is God's love lighting up your life? We can understand it, but until we open our hearts to receive it, to believe it, to stand firm in it, it doesn't truly change us. And this is what John is, is emphasizing here. I mean, the first thing he starts with is beloved. Now, it's interesting when you read the Gospel of John, we, and we noticed this last week, but he says but he's the loved disciple. You know, apparently he thought he was Jesus' favorite. You know, he's like, Jesus really loved me. And so he says that he is the, the beloved disciple. But the reason he believes that he's a beloved disciple is because he is so convinced of God's love for him. He knows Jesus' passion and desire for him. And it's so saturated his life that he knows that he is God's beloved. 
But listen to this. Not only, has, not only has John been convinced that God loves him and that he knows that he is the beloved of God, it has changed the way that he sees other people. Right? It, he, doesn't say, he doesn't say, God sees you as beloved. I'm still working on it. <laughs> right? he, he calls them beloved. Why? Because his relationship with God and how, he, how God sees him has radically changed how he sees other people. It doesn't just stop that, well, God loves me, and maybe God loves them. I'm still working on that process, right? He says, no, God's love has so saturated, has so filled my life that it changes not only my identity, but it changes how I see others' identity. It changes how I look at them and how I speak to them. And this is the same thing that happened to Paul. I mean, right, before Paul became a Christian, he was, he was on board for eliminating Christians, Right? I mean, and, he, and he says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that, uh, I'm going to read it so I don't misquote it. He says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. From now on, therefore, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What happened to Paul? He said that when he became a new creation, when he realized Christ's death for him, it changed how he saw Christ and how he saw other people. He said, I can no longer see them from a fleshly way. What that means is I can no longer see them according to worldly standards. I no longer saw them for their mistakes. I no longer saw them for their profession. I no longer saw them for their hobby. Instead, I saw them as Christ sees them. I see them as those beloved. And how we see other people matters. Do you believe that? How you, how you choose to see other people, it matters. It helps shape their identity, how they see themselves. I, I started to understand this more in marriage. You know, before my wife and I even got married, the Lord just convicted me. He's like, you know, one, my wife is beautiful. Like, I think that she's gorgeous. But just that, that the Lord called me to constantly remind her of that. And so if you, you can ask her, but like, I pretty much always call her beautiful. And she sometimes thinks that I'm mad when I call her Emily. <laughs> you know, is that she's like, I'll say, I'll say Emily. And she's like, are you mad at me? And I'm like, no, I just, you know, because like, I just, I mean, that's, and be, why? Because that's who she is to me. I mean, she's, she's beautiful, not just for how she looks, but who she is, her heart. And, and over the years, that has brought confidence and encouragement and assurance in her life because she knows that is how I see her. And that is who she is to me. And that sits deep. And how we think of other people, how we speak of other people it shapes their identity. It encourages them. It can build them up. And so how do you see the people around you? Do you, do you love them? How do you speak of the people around you? Because one of the clearest ways that we can see how we think of other people is how we speak of them. How do we speak of them when they're not around? How do we speak of them when they are around? Do we, do we seek to encourage how Christ sees them? Do we encourage them that they are loved? that they are unconditionally loved? Do we encourage that by our language, by how we speak of them, by how we identify them? Or do we encourage the other identities? Because you know that there are a million different identities that are wanting to force their way. Your identity is found in your work, in your success at work. And if you aren't fully successful at work, then who are you? Your, your identity is found in your family and your family sticking together and your family being cohesive and nice. And if your family falls apart, then who are you? 
Your identity is found in your hobby and your ability to perform and do this well. And if you don't really do well in that, then who are you? There are a million different identities that are seeking to force their way into your life all the time. The only identity that counts, the only identity that lasts, the only identity that is able to truly save you, that won't destroy you, is that God loves you. Beloved of the Lord. And sometimes this is hard for us to understand. This is hard for us to believe. Because if you actually know yourself, if you see yourself, then you see your failures. You see your brokenness. And this happens to me all the time. I mean, one of the joys and the hardships of preaching every week is that I'm before the scriptures. And what this happens to do is it reveals my inability. It reveals my inadequacy. It it reveals my failures and my sickness and my sin. And it's hard because I'm, I'm made aware all the time of my insufficiency, of my brokenness. And so for those of us that we see our brokenness, we see our sin, sometimes it's hard for us to believe that God actually loves us, that instead what God sees is a failure, God sees brokenness. And what happens when you're doing that is that you have shifted the gaze and you have put more confidence in your failure than in God's power and his grace. And you have to turn your eyes and stop looking and focusing on yourself. Because listen, our sin is, is heinous, it is evil, it is dark, but you're not more powerful than God. And God's grace and God's light is overcoming the darkness and is stronger than your weakness and your insufficiency. And so what we have to do is that we fight by looking at God and looking at the cross and remembering that he has taken the worst of us. He's taken the worst we have to offer, that there's nothing you can do that's gonna surprise him. That he's already taken hell for you. And therefore, he comes with grace. He comes with love. And so we receive this, we believe this, and we stand, we stand in it. When we do this, Jesus lives in us. When you believe that it's not my identity that marks me, but it's Jesus's identity. It's Jesus's success of accomplishing God's work by dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead. When you believe that, Jesus comes and he takes up residence within us. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and God loves his son. God loves Jesus a lot. And the good thing is that when he lives in us, God sees him. The father looks down and he sees the son dwelling inside of us and it pleases him. And we are the beloved of God, the beloved of the Lord. And so my prayer for you is that that would sink into your heart, that you would be so bathed in it that it would saturate, you would overflow in your life. This is what he, he says is that it, it manifests itself. When we believe that we are loved of God, it shows itself in our love to others. I find it really ironic oftentimes that people, people claim often to be Christians or to be followers of Christ, um, but then John's writing, so how do you know, right? How do you know if someone is a, a Christian or not or a follower of Jesus or not? Ultimately, it's up to God to f- be the final determiner on that. But he says that there are indicators, right? There's discernment, there's fruit. And he says one of the fruit is that you're going to love other Christians. You know, if I say that I love God, but yet I hate other Christians, there's something that's broken in that. And I, I always find it ironic how many people say, well, I'm a follower of Christ, but the church, eh, I don't like those people. You know, they're good. They can, they're, they're over there. But me and God, we're, we're cool. You know, and, uh, and Jesus didn't give us that option. I mean, he died for the church. He says, this is my bride. You know, if you come up and you say, well, listen, Trevor, I want to hang out with you, but Emily, I can't stand. 
Like, we're one. That's not going to go over very well with me, just so you know. Uh, and, and so we're, we're one. And, and so, too, when, when people say, I love Jesus, man, Jesus, we're just, we're great. We're on the same page. But yet they haven't darkened the footsteps of a church in, like, six months. I'm kind of like, well, wait a second. Like, you're, you're pretty much saying, like, I love those people. I just don't want to be around them. <laughs> Hold on now. Like, I want to be in a really close relationship with you, but I don't ever want to talk to you. Oh, my gosh. If I had to talk to you, it would be, like, the worst. But I like you a lot, really. Like, hold on now. I mean, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You know, you're trying to have the cake and eat it too. It doesn't work like that. You, you either love God and love the church, or you're showing that you don't, you haven't received or understood the love of God, and therefore that's why you're not loving the church and you're not loving other people. Now, listen, love is important. Love matters, but love's not easy. <laughs> Right? I mean, oh goodness, no. Is love easy? I mean, love costs Jesus his life. And so love is, is certainly not easy. I mean, love is going to bring pain. It's at times going to bring conflict. Love is going to bring suffering. It's going to bring hardship. Love is difficult. Love is not easy. But love is worth it. Love is always worth it. Love brings freedom. Love is what brings joy. Love is what brings change in this world. Love brings hope that things can be different than what they are. Love is hard, but it is worth it. It is worth it. John presses on. After calling them beloved, he writes a very interesting statement. He says, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Huh? Uh, you know, you, you read this at first, and you're like, is that a contradiction? Like, I heard I'm writing you an old commandment, but I'm writing you a new commandment. Okay, John, which is it? Is it old? Is it new? Are we confused? What are you talking about? And I think what John is talking about is that he, the commandment that he, he's talking or he's referencing is what we've talked about. Jesus' command that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is an old commandment. God has been loving and, and commanding his people to love one another from the beginning. It's not like Jesus popped in the scene. He's like, I've got this novel idea. You should love each other. Right? God's always been about love. God's always been encouraging his people to love. We see this in Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God has been loving and demonstrating love in the Old Testament. When we see it, God doesn't destroy people like Israel constantly when they should be destroyed. And God's patient with them. God shows his and manifests his glory to them, to Moses. I mean, you see, God is demonstrating love but yet, it is new. Jesus comes and says, I, I give you a new commandment. How is it a new commandment? Well, I think it's new in its expression. While God's love was out here and demonstrated down there, God's love came incarnate in pursuit of us. God's love was no longer something abstract, but it became concrete in Jesus. It took on specific actions and forms in his life and his death. And so its expression became fuller. The quality and the depth of it became new. And that we saw how, how far God's love was willing to go for us. God was not willing to simply do acts of 
love out there, but God was willing to come down and to take on pain himself. God didn't just relieve pain, but God would take pain for us. And so we see the quality and the, the fullness of God's love in new ways through Jesus. I think a, another way that we see it is that we experience it new and experienced. We, we have a fresh experience of God's love. And what I mean by that is this. You can understand God's love. You can articulate it. You can study it. You can preach it. And it can be still cold and distant from you. But there are times when God's spirit breathes and he comes and we have a fresh experience of his love, of what it means to love others. And it brings fresh life. You see, this is what the Holy Spirit does, is that he brings life from what is dead. When we believe in Jesus, he comes and it says that we are born again, that he takes what has been dead and he brings it back to life. And this is what God wants to do for us with love is that so often it becomes trite and cavalier and casual. God loves you. God is love. And we know it, we articulate it, but yet the experience of it seems distant from us. And, and God wants us to continue to have these fresh experiences with him where his love raptures us, where it captures our emotions and our heart, where it engages our mind and our will, where his love moves us into mission, how does this happen? I know for me, I mean, there have been countless times where I've studied it, where I've preached it, and I'm asking God, but man, for me, the times where God's really lit me up have been when I've been in isolated prayer. I've been in prayer with him. I've been alone with the Father. Or when I've been in community. And some of my greatest times of growth and passion has been when I'm amongst a group of brothers and sisters that are adamantly pursuing the Lord. They're passionate about it. And I see that, and it strikes the coal. It, it makes it, it fans it into flame of the love that God has for me and what he would call me to do in loving others. And then engaging in God's mission. Man, when you engage in God's mission, it's gonna push you outside of your comfort zone, and you can't help but rely upon God's love. It pushes you into areas where you don't know, and, and you're outside of your control, and you have to lean upon something, and, it, and God does that with intention so that you would lean upon him. And in that, he's, he fans into flame the love, and we have these fresh experiences of that. And so if you're here, and you would say, man, I know God's love, I know of God's love, my challenge to you would, would be, would you receive and ask that you would have a fresh experience of God's love, that it would strike your heart in a new and a profound way, that it would set you ablaze, that it would fan maybe that, that ember back into a flame, they would burn. When we do this, when love becomes not just an idea, but when it becomes something that is fresh, that strikes our heart, that engages our will, John says that it brings light into our life. Right? He says that love brings light. And what does he mean by that? He means that love brings clarity into our life. When when we realize that what is the most important thing in this world, it's to love the Lord your God and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. When we really are convinced of that, that those are the most important things, then it puts in great clarity and perspective the rest of our life. It puts in perspective our finances. It puts in perspective our free time. It puts in perspective our work. It 
puts in perspective our family, puts in perspective our yearning for comfort. It, it, it begins to put our life in order when we think about what does it look like for me to love others as I would love myself. That I wouldn't pursue anything from selfishness or vain conceit, but with humility of mind, I would consider others as more important than myself. It begins to bring clarity and put things into order about what really matters. How should we, how should we move and operate in life? But he says, if we don't love others, we walk in the darkness and we stumble. And what does he mean by what does he mean by stumbling? Well, if you've ever walked in the darkness, I don't know if you've ever been out in the woods at night, or maybe it's just your, you know, for us right now, we have tons of baby toys and dog toys all over the carpet. And so you turn off the lights and it's like a landmine, you know, is that you're walking around and like you step on something and your foot's messed up and then usually you end up biting it, you know, like you end up face planting on the floor, mad at the dog, you know, saying I need to teach the dog to put the toys away. <laughs> and so, you know, you triple, you stumble because you don't see what's in front of you. You don't see what's around you. And he says, this is what happens when you don't love, when you hate. And notice that John's very interesting. He's all about contrast. He says, you're either in the light or the darkness. You're either loving or you're hating. He says there's no in-between. And he says that when we aren't loving, we are, we're in the, the process of hating others, of being selfish, of seeking our own good above others' good. And he says that it causes us to stumble, not to see. In, in other ways, he says that it blinds us. The darkness has blinded our eyes. And what has it blinded us to? I think it's blinded us to what really matters. It's, it's blinded us to how hate destroys Hate is going to eat you up. It's going to destroy you from the inside out. It, it destroys your relationships. It destroys you emotionally. It destroys you oftentimes psychologically. Spiritually, it separates you. And not only that, but a lot of times hate is going to bring about physical consequences. You can see it in people's countenance, but not only that, when there's hate, it begins to lead to stress. And what does stress do? Stress often is one of the biggest causes of sickness, whether it's heart disease, whether it's all kinds of things, stress destroys. And so don't you see how it's this massive consequence that it, it blinds us and hate destroys us. It makes us stumble because there's a reality, there's a spiritual reality that God wants us to see around us. And when we are in hate, we can't see it. We can't see the spiritual reality that's right there. But love, it, it illuminates. Love is the opposite of hate. And love heals. Love brings together Love, it moves us forward into maturity. You know, some of us, what hate does is it, it sticks you in a certain place. You know, like sometimes it's, it's like a trap. You've got your foot stuck in it. And sometimes people aren't, you're not able to move. You're just stuck in that same place over and over again, hoping to get free, but you're stuck. Love opens the trap and it allows you to continue to progress. It allows you to continue to move forward. And so he says that love is the light. Loving others is what brings us into maturity. And so, you know, my application for this is, what does it look like for you to love those around you? Who is God placed around you, and what does it look like for you to love them? What does it look like for you to speak words of affirmation, words of love to them, to express God's heart towards them? Our last point, this one's shorter. Verses 12 through 14. So John moves on, and he starts talking about, in verses 12 through 14, these three distinct groups of people. Uh, and it's, 
kind of an interesting section because you read it and it's really a unique and different theme than what John is writing. You know, like John's been writing about light and darkness, love and hate, and then he kind of abruptly is like, I've written to you little children and young men and fathers. You're like, why? What's going on here? Like, why are we talking about this? And a lot of commentators actually think that, you know, John is older. John's probably 70 to 80, and John sees himself as the spiritual father of this church. And I think that's really interesting to note that he sees relationships in the church primarily as one of family rather than acquaintance or associates or friendships. He says that the church, is, he sees it as a family, and he sees himself as a spiritual father to them, um, and he's pouring out his life, and throughout the book, he calls them little children, but here, I think he stops because he realizes that there are also, he knows his audience, and he knows there's probably some older people in the congregation that are like, listen, John, I'm not a little child anymore, and so he says, okay, you are fathers, you know, and then he says there are some that are young men, and so he starts to address his audience in the church, and he says, okay, I know that there are different people amongst you and there are different areas or stages of maturity and this is what he's talking about he's not talking about age gaps you know i mean because the little children aren't going to understand him right he's talking about spiritual maturity and so he says that he, he lumps them into kind of three categories little children young men and fathers as far as spiritual maturity i think there's a couple things that we can learn from this uh, i think that the first thing is that spiritual maturity doesn't go with our age you can't attach spiritual maturity to your age. That There are some people that they are older, but that they are still little children in the faith. They have not progressed into adulthood or to mature, maturity, whether that's because they're new to the faith or that's because they've been stuck in an area. They've never really confessed and repented, but they are, they're stuck in this area. They're stuck in, in some sin that has held them fast and, they, and it is, is kept them from producing the fruit that God would have in them. And so... You know, and yet there are some that are younger. I mean, Paul talks to Timothy, and he's like, listen, let no one look down on you because of your youth. And he calls him an elder. And so we know that, that our age does not reflect our spiritual maturity. The second thing I think that we can learn is that we're all in the process of maturing. Right? Every single one of us is in the process of maturing. And this is super important to understand because the, the church needs both truth and grace. Right? We have to call people out. We have to call sin what it is. Right? I mean, God cares about the holiness of his people. It matters. It's a witness to the world. Um, it, is, uh, it's, it brings freedom in our lives. I mean, holiness matters. And so truth about sin is important, but grace is so vital also. We don't come and uncover people's lives and start poking out sin. Instead, when sin reveals itself, there is grace applied. And this is important because we need to realize that people come to the church in all kinds of different processes or stages. You know, when there are people coming in that are fresh in the faith, we can't treat them as if they are fathers or they're older and mature, but instead we have to have grace. Just as in I'm not expecting Theo to, you know, be able to start walking around and start talking and reading and, you know, and I don't say, well, listen, you know, when you start producing in the house, then you can get food. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have expectations that aren't appropriate to his age because I know where he's at. I know how he's able to develop and where he's at in his process. And so, too, in the church, we need, to, we need to be discerning and realize that people are in process and that we can't come and have these expectations of new believers and expect that they aren't going to sin, that they aren't going to mess up, they aren't, that it's not going to be messy. You know, sometimes we do that. We're afraid of church growth. We're afraid of people coming in because it's going to be uncomfortable. It is. New people in the church, people coming to know Christ at times will be uncomfortable because guess what? We're all broken and they are still in process of understanding God's grace, of understanding what it means. 
So we have to have grace for different for God as he matures people. And then the third thing is I want us to look and learn from each of these stages. Right? Notice he says, he says little children. And the two things he marks, he says, know that you are, your sins are forgiven. Know that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And then he says, know that God is your father. And this is the foundation that every Christian starts at, and it's one that we don't move from. It's not like, well, I learned that. I don't need to go back and relearn that. You know, it's not like it was first grade and you have to repeat it again. Listen, this is a foundation that you have to know and you have to build upon for your entire life. And the foundation is, is you can't save yourself. Is it your brokenness, your sinfulness, isn't going to be fixed by greater effort on your part? You can't put a mask on and pretend and that, that's not going to solve your problems because they're going to pop up. You, don't, you sin because you are a sinner, because it is part of your nature, and your nature has to change. It has to, to move from being condemned to forgiven. And that happens by trusting in Jesus, by believing in his death and his resurrection for you, that he did what you cannot do. And until you trust that, you will never be able to start on the Christian walk and the Christian faith. You will always be outside. And so that is the beginning point of realizing that he does that for his own glory, that God will make much of himself through your life. Not only that, but then it's realizing that because of that, God is now your father, that God is a loving father, that he knows you, he cares for you. Having that fresh experience, what that means to be a father is it means that he knows you and that he loves you. I know Theo. I know, I mean, he doesn't talk, but I know when he's about to spit up, I know the face he gets when he's pooping, you know? I mean, like, I know, I know the kid, you know? And so, and as he gets older, I'm only going to know him better, and I love him. And that's what it means that God is our father, is it means that God knows you. He knows every part of you more thoroughly than your human father, more thoroughly than your wife or your best friend. God knows you, and God loves you, and that that is what we are learning as little children in the faith. And that it builds, it goes with us. And then he talks to young men. And what does he mean by young men? He says three things. He says that they're strong, that the word of God abides in them, and that they have overcome the evil one. Well, their strength doesn't come from themselves. Their strength comes from the fact that God's word is abiding in them. These, these, this group or this maturity stage has an insatiable hunger for God's word. They've moved on from the milk of God's word to the meat. They can't get enough of it. It means that they study, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's not simply understanding God's word, but it's actually doing God's word. The reason that they're studying, the reason that they're mining the depths of God's word is so that they would accomplish God's mission. And they're seeing success, they're seeing growth, right? And this is what he means by they're overcoming the evil one. They're overcoming by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, right? They're, they're overcoming because they realize what it means that Christ has set them free. That freedom is no longer an idea, but it's manifesting itself in their lives in reality. How? Because the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it's now seeping into every category of their life. It's not simply a church category, but the gospel is now reaching into their sexuality, and they're seeing freedom from addiction. They're seeing freedom from premarital sex, from pornography, from lust. It's, it's seeping into their workplace. And they're now seeing freedom from dishonesty. They're seeing growth and integrity. They're seeing a newfound love for coworkers. They're seeing a desire for mission in their workplace. It's seeping into their family. Where they're not discarded in their family for hobbies or for other pursuits, but where they are earnestly desiring to lead their family, 
to see their family grow in maturity in Christ. You see, the gospel is, is now settling into the core of their heart. It's moving from the peripheral to the surface, from the surface to the depths of who they are. And it's what is bringing freedom. It's what is allowing them to overcome. And then he talks to the last group and he says that they are fathers. And he says the same thing twice. You have known him who is from the beginning. It's really an interesting thing. Why does he say it twice? I think that it, it denotes two things. One, I think that it highlights um, the eternality of God, the, the depth of God's character and nature that they know. They know God's nature well. They know his character. They know who God is. But not only that, it, it also expresses their longevity with him. They have had relationship with God through many seasons. They've been with God in the highs, and they've been with God in the lows. They know that God gives and God takes away, but they will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. They've experienced this. They realize, these, these fathers, this spiritual group, they realize that where other people are pursuing leisure and pleasure and comfort, they're pursuing relationships to invest their life in. They realize that they want their legacy not to be how comfortable they were, but they want their legacy to be who they poured their life into, who they invested into, who they gave their life away to. And so they are able to share of the depth of their experience, of the wisdom that God has imparted in and through them to the next generation. And this is what he talks about. How do we mature? How do we go from being little children to fathers? And John's answer in this text is love. Love is the process that matures us. As we learn to love the Lord and we learn to love others, we grow from little children to young men to fathers. And so as we close in prayer, I want to remind us that God loves us. And what that means is that he is passionately committed to his glory and our good. He's passionately committed to his glory in our lives, which will lead to our good. And that means what it looks like for us to love others is it means that you are passionately committed to those around you to see God glorified in their life and that that would be the best way to seek their good. And so who is God calling you to, to demonstrate that love to in tangible ways? And so as we pray, that's my, that's my encouragement, that's my challenge is, is allow the Holy Spirit to work in this and, and maybe there are people that you have hated. There are people that you have had entity for for a long time and maybe God is speaking to your heart right now and he's saying, I'm calling you to love them. I'm calling you out of bondage into freedom. Love them. Maybe there are family members, maybe there are friends or coworkers that you know that the Lord's bringing to mind. He's saying, encourage them, affirm them in my love for them. Demonstrate it in concrete, tangible ways. Bless them. Bless them. Listen to them. Eat with them. Serve them. Share your story. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that your love lights up our life. God, that it brings clarity about what matters, about what's important. Lord, we confess, uh, Lord, I confess the many times in which um, love seems hard or distant, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you do what only you can do by reviving us, by taking what is dead and bringing it to life, by bringing a fresh passion and zeal for your kingdom, God, for your will, and that you would, you would use your word, God, that you would help it to spread, help us to love others as you have loved us by giving our lives away. It's in here we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.